Last week I was um, in Northern California at a beautiful cemetery honoring the remains of a sister I'd known for 22 years. I was her interim pastor actually 22 years ago and at the interment I took uh, earth as is my custom and let it come down on the casket, the remains. And said those kind of harsh words, earth to earth, ash to ash, dust to dust. But then the refrain, as it is written in the 1548 Book of Common Prayer, continues in the sure promise of the resurrection of the body to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christianity is the most earthy of all the world religions. We don't consider creation something that we are going to escape from or leave. It's going to be reclaimed, restored, and redeemed. So it's not surprising that Jesus would tell a parable about land and life and earth and heaven and connecting them together today. We're looking at a parable in which he describes unresponsive lives in light of soils. We're in the same chapter we were Last week, the 13th chapter of Matthew, there are many parables there, but we're going back to the beginning of that chapter. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's Word. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. I don't think it would be sacrilegious to say this is kind of a Southern California setting. And he's talking from the beach to those in the Inland Empire where the farming is done, and at least for a little while longer. We still have some soil that is used productively here other than for housing. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds that fell on the road, and birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away, and others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the parable goes on with a much longer than this explanation of Jesus about it. I'm not going to read that to you for time. And also, if I read Jesus' interpretation of the parable, I wouldn't have a sermon to preach. He's a better preacher on his own parables than I am, but I want to look at this transition, this interesting transitional passage, and we are going to make something of this. So he's just told them this parable. And then verse 9, and the disciples came up and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. 
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So at first blush, Jesus paints a picture, first of all, of rocky soil. It is soil that has been trodden underfoot on the pathway, if you will, until it has become hard and the seeds sowed bounce off of it and the birds who are skilled in such things go down and grab them and carry them away. Jesus is describing here the tragedy, and it is a tragedy, of a human life that has become hard, that has built a shell around it. There are many reasons that might happen. Often it is because of pain or of hardship. Often hard lives are substantial lives that have been hurt and have experienced an ongoing disappointment. So like a clam or an oyster, they build a shell. I like films. There's an international film. I don't know if it's from Iceland or Greenland. It's set in Greenland, and a fairly well-known actress, Julia Ormond, is the heroine in it. She plays a, it's called Smilia's Sense of Snow. And uh, Julia Ormond's character plays a character that's been hurt. She her mother died when she was nine. Her father took her away from Greenland into Copenhagen, and she had a tough transition and no friends. She... So her character is hard. It's as if she could eat tacks for an appetizer and nails for the main course and razor blades for dessert. In one part of the film, one of her friends looks at her and asks her, oh, what is it that happened to you in your life that you became so hard on the exterior. And Armand's character looks back at him and he said, oh, have I given you the impression that I'm hard on the outside? I'm sorry. I meant to let you know that I'm tough everywhere. <laughs> now, that's a hard character. She had been hurt by life, and many of us have been too. There is an appropriate hardness. Jesus wants his disciples to be wise. We are to be gentle as serpents, but wise as doves. Uh, we might, I think I put it down on the outline, look at a parable that talks about that being shrewd. Jesus wants his servants to be mature and to know about the world. There's an appropriate wisdom in life, but there is an inappropriate hardness that cuts us off, that refuses to let us be hurt again. Um, now, while Jesus tells us the exact qualities at the end of good soil, it's productive. It can be fruitful 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. We know what the qualities uh, the effects of good soil are, but he doesn't really give us the characteristics of it. Instead, he gives us the characteristics of uh, bad soil. And we've started with one. It's rocky. It's hard. It's tough. It doesn't let others in. So we know what to avoid, but how can we be productive soil? Uh, it gives us a description, but not much help on first glance. So I want to go back 
my conceit this morning is to, to go back again to the parables and flip each one of these soils because I think a key to good soil is the opposite of the bad. If I'm right, right about that, it's not directly what Jesus is te teaches, but I think it's embedded right in the parable. Then soil lives which are productive and receptive and responsive to the Word of God are soft. They've been tilled and aerated and turned. Uh, my, one of my wife's hobby is uh, gardening, so I have the privilege of living in uh, a property in a house which blooms with beautiful colors all of the time. I'm, I'm glad to have that be her hobby, and she spends at least an hour, sometimes many hours a day out there weeding and arduous, labor, lab laborious work. She'd like me to help more than I do, but sometimes when there's clearly work that I should be doing, the planning, the difficult, the, the, my, my specialty is planting because our soil is clay and it's hard. Actually, plants like to grow in it, but you've got to plant them in there first. And uh, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, uh, one-gallon plants are easier to plant, and they're not easy in our soil, than five-gallon plants. When we go to the nursery, I always go over to the, the one-gallon area and say, hey, honey, these look beautiful right here. <laughs> Luckily, this is our fourth year in our home, and uh, we've planted enough things, and they're beginning to replant, and a lot of the, lot of the soil now is served. I can soft served. I can, I can take that shovel and it goes all the way down and I don't hardly have to step on it if it's soil I've, I've worked with before and turned and broken and put new soil into. Soft soil is receptive. Uh, Washington, D.C., I think you know, is my hometown and it's many decades ago now, but I, I was a boy but I was very interested in Chuck Colson's conversion. He was one of Richard Nixon's henchmen. They called him a hatchet man. They said he'd run over his grandmother if they needed to for a political advantage. And uh, of course, Watergate happened and Chuck Colson, or at least it was reported, became a Christian. I remember at the time reading in the Washington Post, uh, even at that time, the reports were cynical and dismissive and discursive and I, I remember even as a boy, you know, these, these people don't understand the logic of the Christian faith. I, I'm not sure this conversion is genuine, of course, but I do know this is exactly the situation in life in which, in which God reaches people and changes people. When they come face to face with something that they know they are broken and they're open and they're receptive, and sure enough, uh, unlike many Christian celebrities, uh, uh, Chuck Colson fell in with a group at Fourth Presbyterian Church there, and he, they poured their lives into him, and he was nurtured and discipled like Paul. After the Damascus Road, Paul didn't go right out for a public ministry. He was nurtured for three years, and so was Chuck Colson. And so it was no surprise to me that he became one of the great, uh, in my opinion, prophetic voices of the 20th century. But he wrote about his conversion, that time in which he was conversion. He said he was leaving the toxic poisons that went through the veins of Washington, D.C. during that Watergate era. And he was going with his wife for some R&R &R, on, the, on the main seacoast. And on his way, he stopped to visit with a friend of his from Harvard, Tom Phillips, who he had heard but hadn't been with him since he'd become a Christian. 
And Phillips, he said, was a different man. And in his home, he witnessed to me, and he said, you know, Chuck, your problem is that you're proud. You're a proud man. And that's made you hard and unresponsive to the most important things in life. And then he read to him some words from C.S. Lewis. It came, comes from his book, A Mere Christianity, um, which said, pride leads to every other form of vice. Lewis writing now. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It means it is enmity. And not only enmity between people and people, but enmity with God. As long as you are proud, Lewis writes, you cannot know God. And Colson Wright, he immediately felt unclean and unprotected and vulnerable and open, but he resisted. And he said when Philip's prayer uh, prayed for him, uh, he, he felt like Philip's had a direct channel to God and something was different than he'd ever known from his friend or ever known before in his whole life. And he stumbled out of the house. He, he resisted praying for Christ, but he did ask if he could have a copy of uh, Mere Christianity. He took it with him. And uh, he left in his car, and he pulled over out of sight of Philip's home. And then he wrote these words. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fear of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came this strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling me as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. I have a friend who's wise in the Lord and said that we should pay a lot of attention to prayers that are offered by, up by people young in the Lord and, and careful attention to prayers that are oft, offered up by people mature in the Lord. And those of us who are kind of muddling around in the middle, we, we don't have to pay attention as much to one another's prayers, but we can learn a lot from mature prayers and from young prayers. Here's a young prayer. Colson prayed, God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more, so I repeated over and over again the words, take me, take me, take me. It's a pretty powerful prayer. Then he wrote, I stayed in the car, wet-eyed, praying, thinking for perhaps a half an hour, perhaps longer, alone in the quiet of the dark night. Yet for the first time in my life, I felt like I was not alone.
Hardened soil needs to be softened in order for the Word of God to take root in it. I uh, served as saint of the church and as interim pastor in church like this. Here's a fireman, and I've never forgotten the wisdom that he shared with me. I always wondered what this was for. <laughs> and he said there are three kinds of people in the world. There are people who have never been broken, and for them, they are their own God. And then there are people who have only been broken, and for them, other people are their God. And then there are people who have been broken, who have been found and reclaimed and restored and recalled by Christ, and for them, God is God. Be soft. Then Jesus paints another picture. He paints a picture of soil that is shallow. There's no problem for uh, the seed taking root, but there's not much space for the roots to go down into, so plants spring up, but then they immediately wither in the sun and in the heat. Uh, We've all heard that the most interesting thing about Super Bowls are the commercials. Uh, maybe a little less true last uh, week. Uh, it was a pretty good game. But we all watch the commercials, don't we? I watched them for several decades now for a different reason, not because I think they're so good, but kind of the opposite. I think, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have not only been paid for this airtime, but for specialists to advise them for how to give and get into the consciousness of Amer the American psyche. And it's kind of discouraging to me. You know, I look over and over again, this is what the best money can buy, thinks we are, thinks we're interested in, and sometimes I'm frightened, I'm afraid they're true. Somebody said you can, in advertising, aim low because people are riding on donkeys. There is that part of our culture, if we let it take over us, which is shallow in this internet age. We are disposable. It's very easy, one writer says, to engage and disengage. We're good at that. Depth takes time. It takes continuity. It takes work. I'm fascinated with a new book right now. I won't bore you with it too much, but James Polis has written a book called human forever, spirituality in a digital age. And he says uh, the tech giants, the world that we're entering is, is trying to embed different worldviews into their software. And the world of Greek, yes, to an extent, but primarily Judeo-Christian Judeo values, which is informed our Western civilization for almost two millennia is crumbling. That there are the truths that we have been operating are not self-evident, that life is sacred, that all creatures have been created equal and are equally loved by God, that we have rights which are not to be violated. These foundations of our culture are being challenged in our day. It's a great day to be the church. If we're up to it, uh, we are the harbingers of who we are and who we are meant to be. 
people who are finite and frail. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest need is forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. That's who we are. And if we look, hence the title of the book, Human Forever. See one of his quotes, there are a lot of them. Uh, Here's one of his frightening ones. By extracting our data and mining our private moments for profits and power, Silicon Valley titans, shadowy third parties, and intelligence agencies are creating detailed models of our personalities one by one, manipulating us to conform to their ideal simulation. In the aggregate, this process is creating a new type of human being, experimental subjects in a cyborg vivarium. Now, I could go on. There are a lot of frightening things. That's not a place for right now. The important thing is the challenging thing, that we can be salt and light and love and reminding people who we are, who we were meant to be, what our goals are about. He writes, until further notice, we must live recognizably as we were created. Our task is not to ascend infinitely towards heaven or bring it ever closer down to earth, not to escape into the creator or into creation, but to remain ourselves forever human. Indefinitely, it's a powerful book, human forever. And to do that, we need to go deep. Uh, I'm coming to love this church. I've been to five adult Sunday school classes and be to a sixth a day. And yes, someday I've been with the uh, youth. Someday I will go to the, someday soon, I'll go to the children's classes as well. And But of my five classes, I can honestly report there is not one of them that I would not be glad to join and grow with. The word was open. The conversation was rich. Uh, This is a, another thing I appreciate about this church is that a lot of churches with a heritage are turned in on themselves, but this has a great heritage. You, You are welcome and wanted here if you are new, but know you are joining a place where there are lives which have been together for decades, even generations and are not turned on, but have deep soil that are welcoming and opening and enriching. This is a great foundation on which to build and on which to be a witness to Redlands. Being uh, shallow is to be avoided. Being deep is difficult, arduous work, but that is our calling. Martin Luther said that uh, we waste time around in the shallows when God calls us to live in the deeps with Him. We are spiritually like, like corks, at least I am. Left to our own devices, we bob to the surface because sometimes the depths demand so much of us, but it is there when we find richness and, and wealth. One of my hobbies, I haven't done it for a decade, may never do it again, I hope I will, is scuba diving. I love it because my recurring dream is flying but I have no desire to uh, parachute, uh, sky jump. I think I'd probably like it if I, I think I probably would, but I, I don't want to take the first step. And I certainly don't want to hang glide. I know for certain I'd be one of those guys that flips over on the top and becomes the rock down and, and it just plummets immediately down. But scuba diving, you're weightless. Yeah, you go a little bit slow, it's hard to move under there, but you're safe. But uh, if you haven't done that, the most difficult part of scuba diving is going down the first 10 feet. Because every 34 feet, another atmosphere comes on you. So 34 feet, you have two atmospheres down on you, down 
64 feet, if I can do my math, you have three atmospheres on you. So the deeper and deeper you go, the less and less of percentage of change it is. But there's the greatest change that that first 10 feet is hard. You have to to duck yourself under and push yourself under. And uh, then once you get down about 10 feet, you can begin to swim, fly. Depth. We want to go to deep places together. One of, uh, one of my favorite preachers, I got to know a little bit. Uh, he has a national ministry. And he said, I've never written about my spiritual life, and I'm never going to. I'm uh, not against that. Other people write, and you can be helped by it, but I'm not going to do it. Because my spiritual life is like uh, the the groundwork of the iceberg, and about 90% of the iceberg is underwater. And I want my spiritual life to be seen by what people see in my ministry and my writing. I want them to see it there. And the Lord and I will produce it down here. We are called to lives which, before the Lord, are deep. Uh, The first psalm said, a life which is planted in God will be like a life which sends down roots deeply into him. And those that don't have deep roots, the psalmist writes, the first psalm, uh, will be like dust that end in endless doom. Well, that's worse than any zombie movie. But lives which are rooted deeply in God, their leaves will not wither, and they will be fruitful. The third picture that uh, Jesus gives us, he's given us rocky soil, which needs to become soft. He's given us thin soil, which needs to become deep. And the third problematic soil is thorny soil. Once again, there's no problem in things growing in that soil. The problem is too many things grow in the soil, so it becomes cluttered and hard, and you get snagged on things. There's no room for the good things. Anybody who is a gardener knows in the race between the plants that you want to have and weeds, at least initially, the weeds are going to win every time. Now, eventually, say if you plant a tree and you water it and you protect it, it will eventually grow up, and so will your substantial plants and bushes. And They will be stronger than the weeds, but not initially. They need to be nourished and protected. Uh, We, I don't need to say anyone here, here, modern life is cluttered. We have a lot of interests. And as I said last week, the good can rob us sometimes of the best. There are appropriate interests. We are called to those interests by God, but our lives should also be pure. Soren Kierkegaard, my favorite philosopher, a Christian, said purity of heart is to will one thing. Einstein, that's Einstein's definition of genius. What is it to be a genius? He said, well, that's easy. It's the ability to think of one thing at a time. My other favorite philosopher, 20th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, was a guest at, uh, well, professor at Cornell University, and this is in the middle 20th century. And his, uh, uh, honored guests. He wanted to make sure he was happy, and anything he wanted, they would make available to him. What would you like to eat? And Wittgenstein said, oh, it doesn't matter. So long as it's the same thing every day. 
In other words, he didn't want other distractions. He didn't want to think about, so he wanted to be able to think about one thing at a time. Now, that's one end of the spectrum, but it does speak to purity. First things first, and last things not at all. Our lives aren't to be cluttered, they are to be pure, they are to be sold out. We sang about it today. I'm, I'm getting used to the fact that no matter how hard I work on our, my sermon, we've already sung about it, we've been there in our praise and worship. Take all of me, take me, take me, take me. Well, those are the three qualities. Let's look very briefly at the fact that there's a common denominator we've already touched about, and that is that growth which takes place is beneath the surface. To people who are hard, their lives are unreceptive to the Word of God. To people who are thin and shallow, their lives are unproductive for the Word of God. And to lives uh, which are cluttered, their lives are actually destructive to the Word of God. The parable says they choke out the Word of God. But to lives which have become, become soft and deep and pure, then lives are receptive and productive and constructive for the Word of God. Then I said I want to look at that interesting transitional text that uh, the disciples come to Jesus after this parable and say, what are you talking parables? And Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now bear with me here. He goes on and in more verses than we've read of the parable itself, he explains it. And he says uh, that people aren't going to understand. Actually, his explanation for this parable isn't that difficult to understand. Why is it the fact that Jesus interprets the parable. That would be the, the simple meaning of the parable. The disciples go to him, and Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, and then he explains the parable. But again, the explanation isn't dark. It's not torturous. It's straightforward. What does it mean that to the disciples has been given the secret of the kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, this is my suggestion to you. This is what I believe it means. The secret is not the explanation or the interpretation he's about to give, but the secret of the kingdom, the secret of life, is to carry your questions to Jesus Christ. All that we are and all that we have, every confusion about our life, every problem, every hope and every dream and every joy, carry them to Christ. And your lives will be soft and pure and deep and productive and responsive. I um, have already said that Washington, D.C. is my hometown and the patch of soil, public soil, public terrain that is most... Uh, dear to me that I most associate with is the mall in Washington, D.C., that strip of land that runs between the Washington Monument and uh, the Capitol. I've been there, probably I was there once a week. Every day of my youth for 18 years, it was, we went past that to get to my dad's office whenever I went down there, his courtroom. Uh, he was an administrative law judge, or whenever visitors came into town, which was frequently, went, we went down to the 
the malls and the museums and galleries and the other side of that mall. I've been in them countless uh, days and countless hours. We've been down there to watch the fireworks. I'll, I'll, you know my age anyway. Uh, it was there that I went to celebrate John Glenn orbiting. I was just a boy uh, going around the, the globe three times. It was there I went and, and tried to make my way through the crowds. I, I, I couldn't to see John F. Kennedy's body in interment there in the Capitol. It was there that I went to see Resurrection City from Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the regrets of my life uh, is I didn't go down to hear his I Have a Dream speech on, on the steps of the Capitol, but I have many associations uh, with that piece of land, that soil. Uh, some years ago, there was a uh, sacred assembly there. I didn't go. I, with a group of men in the church I was serving at the time, we watched it on the screen. And, uh, it was a magnificent assembly. That mall was filled with Christians, and some of my students went there, and when they came back, I asked them to give me a testimony about it. And One of them said, well, my favorite time is when one of the speakers asked us to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he asked us again a third time, and it got louder and louder, and then there was silence, and we realized what had just happened. And we burst out with applause, and then as loud as we could, we said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I went there in my own imagination, and I saw... I saw that sound going down on the soil and going up and up through the bricks and in the museums on the side until the very rocks and stones would cried out. It was a foretaste of glory. It was a foretaste of what is going to happen when every rock and stone and tree and tongue is going to be celebrate Jesus Christ as Lord. I want to be honest with you. There are times right here in this room with our wonderful worship team and teams and hostway. I've, I've been to a place like that and I appreciate the way they take us there, that's a foretaste of the future and what we are to be and to be about. At the conclusion of a uh, Christian conference I was at, we had a Christian mime. He was wonderful, but the, the very last of his presentations, he went to this parable, and we saw him as sower sowing seed. I can't do it, but he could. And we saw the seed growing up and withering and prospering and all that happening with the end, the end of the end, the conclusion of the conclusion of the whole weekend. He turned and we went into the bag, which by this time we could see on his shoulder. And in just one gesture, he threw it out and froze. And of course we knew what he was saying. What kind of soil are we going to be? Are we going to be hard or soft or shallow or deep or cluttered or pure? We want lives which are fruitful and productive and rich and robust and all that God has called them to be. And if we do, we will have lips which can speak and sing and hearts which can feel and minds that can think and hands that can do and say that Jesus Christ is Lord forever and ever. Can we say that together? Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we ask you forgiveness for ways in which our lives have been repeatedly hard and unresponsive and shallow and cluttered. We want more, we see more than that in you. We are thankful for the faithfulness of Christ 
who lived a life which was pure and responsive and deep, and because of that we can be covered by his grace and goodness, and all that he was and is can be counted to us, and the reason that we were created can be ours, can be known, we can be adopted into your family, we can be sons and daughters of your life and love. We pray together for this, our church. We pray that not only we might be productive and pleasing to you, but we might be warm and welcome enough to invite others in that their lives might be rooted deeply into the rivers of living water and that they might grow into plants which do not fade and will not wither, but indeed can provide nourishment and shade to others. That is our prayer for our life and our living. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.